This week, Toys R Us received bids over $1 billion for an 85% stake in the Asia joint venture and IP in Asia, while Isaac Larry informally bid on the Canada stores and top performing US stores. Bantan's work fee motion got denied and Nine West got first day relief. And it might also get an examiner. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Nick Lichtenberg. And I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. Our deep dive will take its first trip to Puerto Rico this week, as distressed debt legal analyst Teresa Lee will lead a discussion on the recently released fiscal plans, ongoing litigations under Title III, and the governor's war of words with House Natural Resources Chairman Rob Bishop. Joining Teresa will be senior distressed debt legal analyst Patrick Mohan and distressed analyst Yashwant Chunderu. It's Sunday, April 15th. The Toys R Us case entered the week with the debtors, UCC, and ad hoc B4 lender group cautioning against a conversion of the cases to a Chapter 7 liquidation. The debtors in particular warned that a conversion to Chapter 7 could cause the, quote, collapse of the rest of their operations. That was a prescient warning as debtors' counsel revealed on Wednesday that they'd received bids of upward of $1 billion for 85% of Toys Asian Joint Venture, and sources indicated to Reorg that the bids also include exclusive rights to intellectual property in the Asia division. The debtors also told the court that they don't want to rely only on such bids and are considering whether the international business could reorganize on a standalone basis. And could the Toys R Us stores in the U.S. still be acquired? Isaac Larian, who started a widely remarked upon GoFundMe campaign to take over the American operations last month, announced a formal bid on Friday worth $675 million for Toys' 274 best-performing U.S. stores and $215 million for the company's Canadian stores. What the heck is this if it's not a bid protection? Judge Mary Walrath asked counsel in the Bonton cases on Wednesday. The Pennsylvanian retailer had entered court seeking approval of a $500,000 work fee in connection with a letter of intent for a $128 million baseline going concern bid by DW Partners and landlords Namdar Realty and Washington Prime. A group of 8% second lien note holders had objected to this work fee motion, noting the LOI was entered into after the bid deadline and saying that Bonton was, quote, determined to select any potential going concern buyer as the highest and best bid. Ultimately, Judge Walrath agreed, telling the debtors that they, quote, can't willy-nilly pay somebody else's fees in connection with bidding on the assets, just because they don't call the payment a bid protection. Bonton has an April 16th auction scheduled and has received three qualified bids for substantially all of the debtors' assets, all of them for a liquidation. Staying on the subject of bankrupt retailers, Nine West obtained first day relief this week, although it may also receive an examiner if a group of 2034 note holders have anything to do with it. At the first day hearing, counsel to the group indicated that it believes, quote, substantial claims exist against the Sycamore entities that led the retailer's 2014 leveraged buyout. Judge Shelley Chapman said she, quote, did not expect to hear the word examiner at the hearing and asked why an unsecured creditors committee could not lead such an investigation. Judge Chapman ultimately said discussion of a potential examiner motion would be, quote, putting a little bit of the cart before the horse. 
she added that she'll leave the examiner question to the parties for now and will be, quote, anxiously waiting to see what happens. The island of Puerto Rico received a record disaster grant of $18.5 billion from the Department of Housing and Urban Development on Tuesday, although a press release that followed the initial announcement broke the grant down to $18.44 billion to be exact. The U.S. Virgin Islands would receive $1.62 billion through the same program. The overall allocation of disaster relief is the largest in the federal department's history. Also this week, Reorg reviewed a separate draft term sheet for a community disaster loan from the U.S. government of a little more than $2 billion. The package would include a perfected first-priority priming security interest in all Commonwealth revenues, including funds used to repay general obligation and COFINA bonds. And in Venezuela, the state-controlled utility company Electricidad de Caracas, or ELECAR, defaulted on a $650 million principal payment under its 8.5% unstructured bond, which was trading around 38.39 at the beginning of April and was quoted at a wide bid-ask of 28.34 on Wednesday. The ELECAR notes do not carry cross-default provisions with sovereign or pay-to-visa debt. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State nominee Mike Pompeo said on Thursday that the U.S. government is trying to help Venezuelans obtain the leadership and government that they need. Venezuela's campaign period ends next week, April 19th. Other top-read stories this week were, number one, in Puerto Rico, Judge Swain questions parties regarding constitutional debt limit provisions, COFINA's lack of full faith and credit pledge, reserves decisions on summary judgment motions. Number two, earnings. Petco Q4 hit by 4.9% comp sales decline, 15.2% year-over-year decline in consolidated EBITDA to $130.5 million. And number three, U.S. trustee in First Energy cases appoints a seven-member UCC. The committee selects Milbank and FTI as legal and financial advisors. And now we'll pass it over to Jim in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Good morning, everyone, and greetings from Houston, where it's a bracing 50 degrees. Reminds me when I was a kid, and at the time, the doomsayers were all warning us of a new ice age. Now, this could happen. There was a little ice age back in the 17th century, which seems to have been just an awful time to be alive. According to this book I've been reading, this little ice age was a contributing factor to various nastiness during the century. It was the civil wars in England, the Thirty Years' War in Germany, the time of troubles in Russia, plague, famines, and flood in Spain, wars with France. Anyways, just a cheerful thought to ponder. I guess we should all be long WTI. Anyways, this week, most of the action is in the courthouse. One that isn't is Rex Energy up in Pennsylvania. On Monday, April 16th, is the expiration of the forbearance with the senior term loan lenders. Also on Monday, the cumulus confirmation, the first of three scheduled days. The first Energy FERC adversary hearing and an auction of Bonton assets at the offices of Paul Weiss in New York. Tuesday, April 17th, confirmation hearing for C-Drill and a motion to dismiss and Chapter 11 trustee hearing for Zohar. While we're on the subject, here's your Lynn Tilton thought. There exists both artistry and elegance in the building of an aircraft. We must honor those who are the makers of things. And y'all know she is absolutely right about that. Wednesday, April 18th, is the sale hearing for Bonton. 
Thursday, April 19th, brings an omnibus hearing for Toys R Us, a UCC formation meeting for Nine West, and a second day's hearing in Claire's. And on Friday, April 10th, the target for the fiscal plan certification date in Puerto Rico. And that's all from me. If the good Lord's willing and the creek don't freeze over, we'll see y'all next week. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now we'll turn to our deep dive look at Puerto Rico, moderated by Teresa Lee. Thanks. So I have here with me today the legal and financial analysts covering Puerto Rico here at Reorg. Patrick Mohan is a senior distressed debt legal analyst and leads coverage on Puerto Rico. Prior to joining Reorg Research, Patrick clerked for bankruptcy judge John Waits and bankruptcy judge Arthur Gonzalez and was an associate with White and & Case and Barton Law Firm. Yashwant Chunduru is the lead financial analyst on Puerto Rico and previously was an analyst in the restructuring groups at Guggenheim Partners and Miller Buckfire. It's great to have you both here with me today on our first Puerto Rico deep dive. Now, Reorg has been covering Puerto Rico extensively for years for our subscribers, but this is the first time we've had a Puerto Rico podcast. Now, the Commonwealth just released a new set of fiscal plans for several of the Title III entities, including the Commonwealth, its electric utility PREPA, its water and sewer utility PRASA, and its highway and toll authority HTA. On one hand, the Commonwealth fiscal plan projects a $6.3 billion surplus through fiscal year 2023, up from the $6 billion surplus projected in March. PRASA and HTA either project no money available for debt service or a cash shortfall after debt service. PREPA, on the other hand, is currently the subject of privatization efforts by the governor. Now, as we might expect, bond prices across various instrumentalities dipped after Hurricanes Irma and Maria last fall, but they've now largely recovered, some to higher levels than before. One series of the general obligation bonds, for example, dipped to as low as the low 20s in January, but are now in the low 40s. Can you give us an overview of what's going on with these different entities? Sure. The entire fiscal plan process was disrupted by Hurricanes Maria and Irma, and, um, but prior to the hurricanes, the Oversight Board certified a series of fiscal plans, including plans for the Commonwealth, PREPA, and PRASA. Since January, the Commonwealth and several instrumentalities have been going through the process of revising their fiscal plans to reflect the reality of a post-hurricane Puerto Rico. At the Commonwealth level, one of the more significant changes we've seen over time is the inclusion of federal funding following the storms. Just comparing the January draft fiscal plan against the February draft, you see a large change in the overall financial projections, shifting from a projected $3.4 billion deficit to a projected $3.4 billion surplus. As you noted earlier, the Commonwealth is now projecting a surplus of $6.3 billion across six years before debt service, reflecting the impact of increased federal support, a recovering economy, and impl implementation of measures. Looking at the fiscal plans in terms of the Title III debt or debtors, the Commonwealth fiscal plan is probably the most important. The Commonwealth was the first Title III debtor to file in May, and in, in this case really serves as the main Title III case. The Commonwealth fiscal plan includes the bulk of the governmental funding and services. It also reflects the largest areas of potential cost savings and revenue measures, and the plan focuses on a series of measures related to the transformation of the Puerto Rico government including with respect to um, optimizing Puerto Rico's current government model, addressing health care reform, compliance with tax enforcement, and the reduction of appropriations from the Commonwealth to its various instrumentalities and, in, and municipalities. The other Title III cases that are currently pending are, are the Puerto Rico, Highway, Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority, the Employee Retirement System, COFINA, 
and the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, or as we call it, PREPA. Out of the remaining four entities, much of the attention has been paid to COFINA in terms of the ongoing sales and use tax litigation, and also to PREPA, which has had its restructuring support agreement voted down um, by the oversight board prior to its filing. However, there's also been a significant amount of litigation to date in the HTA, ERS, and PREPA cases, with several decisions by Judge Swain currently on appeal. Several of the entities for which fiscal plans have also been filed are not Title III debtors, including PRASA, the University of Puerto Rico, and the Government Development Bank. The GDB is currently working through an RSA process with the goal of pursuing a qualifying modification under Title VI of PROMESA. On March 26, the Commonwealth disclosed the amended terms of the GDB's restructuring support agreement with bondholders. And on April 9th, AFAF announced that the requisite number of holders of the GDB's participating bond claims have signed the amended GDB restructuring support agreement. Okay, so now that we have an idea of what these different entities are and what's going on with each of them, why do their fiscal plans project such different results? So one reason why each of the entities reflect such different results is the nature of each entity itself. The Commonwealth obviously has uh, taxing power, while the other entities, including both of the utilities, derive their revenue in large part from customers. The HTA, for example, collects its revenues from, um, among other things, toll revenues, while PREPA and PRASA revenues are generated from ratepayers. And over the past few months, government officials have raised the possibility of those entities needing additional funds, which can include transfers from the Commonwealth. And we've seen the example of PREPA that sought debtor in possession financing from the Commonwealth. And there are also a lot of other factors in play. One of those related issues is outmigration, which has been a big part of the fiscal plans. And not only does outmigration hurt the Commonwealth's ability to generate tax revenues, but it also reduces the number of paying customers for these local utilities, as well as the number of on-island citizens that are spending money in the local economy. And with that said, the Commonwealth's view on that outmigration has become a bit more optimistic in the most recent fiscal plans compared with some of the earlier post-Maria iterations. For example, the February draft, which was over a six-year period through uh, fiscal 2023, projected a cumulative 20% decline in the population, which is pretty crazy to think that one-fifth of the population was being expected to leave in six years. And in the most recent April draft, the cumulative population decline over the next six years was expected to be just a shade under 11%. So while that's still a significant amount of out-migration, it's far more optimistic than the February projection. And interestingly, though, while the top-line population projections have become a bit more optimistic, still negative, but more optimistic, some of the other high-level economic projections have gone the other way. Nominal GDP growth, for example, was projected to be an average of 2.6% over the next 30 years on average in the February version. And in the latest version in April, that's been brought down to a more modest 1.9% on average annually. Nominal disposable income in February was projected to grow at an average of 2.9% over that same time period and is now projected to be 2.1%. So I think that the out-migration is definitely a factor you see a lot of the instrumentality cite, at least in part for the projections of minimal cash flow 
that's available for debt service. And the Commonwealth, because it has more levers to pull and a broader revenue base is a bit more insulated than, for example, the HTA, PREPA, and PRASA, whose revenue collections are directly tied to the number of people on the island. But of course, generally, an exodus of your population is not great for any economy to experience. I see. And it, it definitely makes sense that outmigration can present a challenge for any economy. So how do these high-level economic projections translate into actual results and cash flow? For sure. So the Commonwealth projects out all of its various revenue streams and expenditures over the next six years through fiscal 2023. And in the most recent fiscal plan, as uh, we've already briefly touched on, a $6.3 billion cash flow surplus is projected after incorporating various measures, but before debt service. And this projection has been more and more positive since the first post-Maria draft that came out in January. That version pro- projected a cash flow deficit of $3.4 billion, although this was only over five years through fiscal 2022. Um, and the February version, which started the inclusion of sixth year at the request of the Oversight Board, projected a $3.4 billion surplus. The March version represented another significant increase to a $6 billion surplus over that time. And now we're at a $6.3 billion surplus before debt service. In the latest version, if you were to include the contracted debt service, which totals more than $15 billion over the next six years, it swings to a $9.4 billion deficit. Clearly, that indicates that the current debt structure is not sustainable for the economy. So that begs the big question, what is the right amount of debt? No one really knows the right answer yet, but the fiscal plans include implied debt capacity analysis for the Commonwealth, as well as some of the individual instrumentality fiscal plans. And for the Commonwealth specifically, they base the analysis on the top 10 most levered U.S. states using four different uh, metrics. And if you would apply those averages to the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, you get an implied debt range of about $4 billion to $13 billion in fiscal 2018 that grows to a range of roughly $7 billion to almost $25 billion over 30 years. Another added wrinkle since the hurricanes is the infusion of uh, federal funds. In March, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and Governor Ricardo Rosselló announced that an agreement had been reached regarding community disaster loan financing for the Commonwealth. And in terms of federal funds, another key area is Medicaid funding. Congress approved funding in April that could result in up to $4.9 billion in additional Medicaid funding to the Commonwealth. And also just earlier this past week, the Department of Housing and Urban Development approved a community development block grant for Puerto Rico in the amount of $18.5 billion, which is uh, $7.5 billion higher than was expected. Governor Rosselló said that the fiscal plan would have to be updated to incorporate this higher than expected funding amount. So I think that this conversation has to be framed in the context that cash flow projections are definitely subject to change, given the considerations around federal funding. So now that we're talking about Governor Rosseo, can you talk about the recent exchange between the governor and U.S. House Natural Resources Committee Chairman Rob Bishop of Utah? Sure. Um, one of the more interesting developments in recent weeks has really been has been the statements um, by Governor Rosseo and Representative Bishop 
who serves as, as you said, the chairman of the House Committee on Natural Resources, which introduced PROMESA. Governor Rosseo has been open about his intention to deliver a fiscal plan that excludes the firing of public employees, a new labor reform, and a cut to public pensions. While he's acknowledged that the Oversight Board can certify its own fiscal plan under PROMESA, he has said that if the Oversight Board certifies a plan that exhibits what he characterizes as an overreach of its powers, the Commonwealth government will exercise its discretion when implementing those measures it considers proper and in the public well-being. Representative Bishop recently expressed his frustration with the progress in the Title III cases, specifically the lack of creditor engagement by the Oversight Board. In a letter dated March 29th, Bishop took issue with the lack of any certified plans to date and also said that the plans published at the time of his letter sought to circumvent the stated purpose of PROMESA. Bishop stressed that PROMESA includes a careful balance that requires the Oversight Board to transparently assess the economic impact of the hurricanes and respect the relative lawful priorities or lawful liens of debt issued, while at the same time working cooperatively with creditors on holistic solutions to revitalize the local economy and stabilize Puerto Rico's finances. Bishop also stressed the importance of ensuring that the government, pe- the government pension plans are properly maintained adding that a good starting point for the Oversight Board would be to determine what constitutes essential public services in order to clearly define where governmental cuts should occur. Governor Roseo criticized Bishop's letter, calling it an attack on the Puerto Rican people. In a subsequent letter, Roseo expressed his disappointment in Bishop based on the letter and commented that Bishop was favoring the well-being of mainland bondholders over island residents and encouraging the PROMESA Oversight Board to usurp Commonwealth powers. At the end of March, PROMESA Board Chairman Jose Carrion said that the PROMESA Board anticipates certifying the latest versions of the fiscal plans in a timely manner once the required changes have been addressed by the government. Carrion also said that the Board is on track to certify plans for the Commonwealth, PREPA, PRASA, HTA, UPR, COSIC, and the Government Development Bank on or before April 20th. What does that mean for the Commonwealth and all of these Title III proceedings? Yeah, so we were expecting the Oversight Board to hold its 12th public meeting on March 26th, but that meeting was ultimately canceled. And in its press release that canceled the meeting, the Oversight Board announced that it was continuing to work with the government on the fiscal plans. And as far as next steps, as you noted, the Commonwealth submitted uh, a series of revised plans on April 5th. And leading up to the April 5th release of these plans, the Oversight Board sent a series of letters to the Commonwealth outlining the revisions that must be made to the fiscal plans prior to certification. Whether they are made publicly available or not, it is likely that the Oversight Board is providing the Commonwealth and the government with its comments on the latest round of fiscal plans. However, based on Governor Rosseo's comments and some of the revisions that were not incorporated into these latest drafts, it remains to be seen which of the changes he decides to incorporate. The next step will be likely a public meeting at which the Oversight Board announces whether it will certify the various fiscal plans to date. And in connection with the prior certification process at the public meeting, the Board provided conditional approval of the fiscal plan subject to certain changes being made. At this point, however, as I just noted, it remains to be seen whether these changes will actually be made. 
So now we briefly touched on the conflicts that have been alleged to exist between all of these different Puerto Rican government entities. And as you both know, uh, there have been extensive litigations on these conflicts and who's entitled to the different streams of revenue that are being produced by the government. One of the biggest fights is between the Commonwealth Unsecured Creditors Committee and a government entity called COFINA. And this has to do with who owns a stream of purportedly dedicated sales and use taxes, and uh, more broadly, whether the entire COFINA structure is actually unconstitutional. Judge Laura Taylor Swain heard argument on competing summary judgment motions this past Tuesday, April 10th, in that particular litigation. What happened at that hearing, and what can we expect to come out of it? The hearing was actually only four hours or so, but it was definitely jam-packed with questions from Judge Swain. She spent a great deal of time focusing on the language of the Puerto Rico Constitution, uh, as well as the language of the COFINA enabling legislation. At times, it felt more like a dialogue on the events leading up to and those following the enactment of COFINA. As far as the arguments raised, there is a clear dividing line with the pro-COFINA parties on one side and the pro-Commonwealth sides on the other, which is something that has been apparent from the outset of the Title III cases and throughout the litigation itself. For the pro-Commonwealth parties, the arguments focused on issues surrounding the transfer of the SUT revenues to COFINA, both in terms of whether the pledge issue is irrevocable and whether the Commonwealth had the constitutional authority to do so. From the perspective of the ad hoc group of general obligation bondholders, there's an absolute commitment under the Puerto Rico Constitution to provide constitutional debt with an absolute first claim on all of the Commonwealth's available resources. The pro-Commonwealth parties also argued that the Commonwealth did not have the authority to irrevocably transfer the SUT to COFINA under Article 6, Section 8 of the Puerto Rico Constitution. The Commonwealth parties also tried to paint the COFINA bond structure as an end run around the Constitution and said its creation of, is one of the factors that drove the Commonwealth into its fiscal and debt crisis by enabling the Commonwealth to go into hawk up to its eyeballs, as Judge Swain said. The COFINA parties argued that the Puerto Rico legislature had the authority to create COFINA and stressed that the COFINA bonds are non-recourse bonds that are not backed by the full faith and credit of the Puerto Rico government. The pro-COFINA parties urged the court to consider the plain language of the COFINA enabling statute and argued that there is no ambiguity about the legislature's intention in carving out this revenue stream so there's not available resources to the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth parties also argued that the federal courts have consistently deferred to states in determining issues of property rights unless there is a comp compelling federal interest. As far as what we can expect, it's really wait and see right now. Everyone is waiting for her ruling, and by everyone I mean the parties in the case and also observers from the municipal finance market as a whole. The court gave no sense of how long it will take the, to issue a ruling, but this is probably one of the most significant issues, if not the most significant issue in the case, and Judge Swain understands that. As the Oversight Board recently noted, the resolution of the Commonwealth-Cofina dispute is a necessary prerequisite to both debtors, the Commonwealth and Cofina, and their ability to move forward on plans of adjustment. So now on the constitutional point, uh, there have also been a number of parties alleging that the PROMESA board itself is unconstitutional, and that basically this entire Title III proceeding should be unwound. What's going on there? Last year, two parties, Aurelius and Utier, which is a union of prepa utility workers, challenged the means in which the oversight board members were appointed under PROMESA. 
The challenge by both parties is based on the Appointments Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which has increasingly become a more common line of attack for financial institutions seeking to challenge governmental authorities' ability to make determinations that negatively affect the institutions. The strategy is less based on the substance of an entity's decision and more about challenging the constitutional authority of the entity actually making the decision or taking an action. Beyond PROMESA, we've seen a number of these challenges in the context of the SEC's use of administrative law judges. The challengers argue that the PROMESA oversight board members are officers of the United States, not the Puerto Rico government. And despite labeling the board as an entity within the Commonwealth government, the oversight board is subject to the ongoing control of the federal government. The challengers have argued that the oversight board cannot plausibly be characterized as a component of the government of the Commonwealth. Focusing on their appointment, the parties raising the constitutional argument have argued that the oversight board members should have either gone through a Senate confirmation process or if the oversight board members are considered to be inferior officers, the, the act of PROMESA does not vest the appointment power in the president alone, but instead creates a structure in which the president chooses six of the seven board members from seat-specific lists compiled by Republican and Democratic leaders in Congress. Aurelius and Utier have argued that because the board is unconstitutional, its acts, including all of the acts leading up to and including the filing of the Title III cases, are void. These actions would include the certification of fiscal plans, approval of Commonwealth budgets, and the authorization given to commence the Commonwealth's Title III proceeding. Since PROMESA was enacted, several parties have voiced their criticism of the various iterations of the fiscal plans, including bondholders that take issue with the economic projections as well as the projected debt service. However, PROMESA expressly states that no court in the United States has a jurisdiction to review a challenge of the Oversight Board's certification determinations, including those with respect to the fiscal plans. Judge Swain has also made this clear in her rulings. So given the protections afforded to the Oversight Board's certification determinations, one of the only avenues to challenge them is to challenge the validity of the Oversight Board's actions, and one way to do that is through challenging the process by which its members were appointed. In January, Judge Swain heard argument on the Appointments Clause dispute over the constitutionality of how the PROMESA Oversight Board members were selected. The court heard arguments from Aurelius and Utier attorneys on one side, which argued why the appointment of the PROMESA Board members is unconstitutional. On the other side, uh, attorneys for the Oversight Board and both the U.S. and Puerto Rico governments, among others, defended the constitutionality of the Oversight Board members' appointment. The court has not yet issued its ruling on the Appointments Clause litigation. However, in a separate ruling early, earlier this year on the issue of whether the Commonwealth and COFINA agents had the authority to mediate the claims that were dismissed in the dispute as part of their ongoing mediation, Judge Swain addressed the issue of, the additional, of this additional delegation and concluded that it, was not, it would not violate Sections 303 and 305 of PROMESA. According to the order, the delegation is not improperly invasive of the powers that Section 303 reserves to the Commonwealth government. In reaching her conclusion, Judge Swain found that, the reservation, that this reservation is subject to the other provisions of PROMESA, including Section 101c1, which provides that the Oversight Board is created as an entity within the territorial government. Touching on an issue that is central to the Appointment Clause litigation, Judge Swain found that PROMESA's statutory structure provides that the Oversight Board, when exercising authority granted, granted to it by PROMESA, is acting as a Commonwealth governmental authority. So now um, I want to change to a slightly different topic. We spoke about, a little bit about PREPA earlier, and they were the first entity in the Title III cases to officially seek some form of dip financing. Yash, can you tell us how that process played out? Yeah, that's right. And, uh, happy to touch on it. 
So in late January, PREPA filed a motion seeking to borrow money from the Commonwealth in the form of a senior secured priming super priority revolving credit facility. And the amount of the facility by the time of the hearing was up to $1 billion. Uh, Judge Swain uh, then ultimately denied the motion, finding that the movements failed to establish uh, either the need for or the legality of approval of the $1 billion facility. However, at the same hearing, Judge Swain indicated that she would consider approval of a $300 million unsecured super priority facility. And the following week, approved a $300 million facility, which included the revised terms from the financing proposal that was uh, eventually denied. And in late March, uh, the Oversight Board indicated that PREPA does not expect to need supplemental post-petition financing before May 15th, which was a departure from prior comments, adding that uh, an additional request might be actually until several weeks after the May 15th date. And uh, Martin Beanstock, who's counsel for the Oversight Board, also disclosed that based on the additional runway for seeking additional financing, PREPA extended the deadline for parties to submit alternate uh, financing proposals. And what's been interesting since then um, is a theme that PREPA's operations and financials have seemed to consistently been improving since, uh, since that time. And there's a weekly report published for PREPA in connection with uh, the loan that includes a 13-week cash flow forecast. And the most recent report, as of April 4th, projects a $285 million balance in the operating account and operating reserve fund for the week ending May 18th. And in the first of these reports, which was as of February 28th, uh, the same operating account and reserve fund was projected to be at about only $50 million as of May 18th. So while it's, uh, PREP is not necessarily out of the woods yet, things seem to be going in the right direction. So it does seem like there are a lot of moving pieces with return, with uh, respect to these instrumentalities finances. And uh, I know that we touched briefly on the ongoing mediation before. Um, have there been any developments on that front? I think really right now, um, looking at the mediation, we know that it's ongoing. I think that's the primary thing. Uh, the mediation framework is something that has been in place in the Title III cases since the beginning of the case. Uh, Chief Judge Barbara Hauser of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Northern District of Texas is leading the mediation team, which is made up of several other um, federal judges. Unfortunately, the mediation has been completely confidential, and the only updates that we receive are, are those from Judge Hauser herself at the, at, at the omnibus hearings. Obviously, the mediation was disrupted by Hurricanes Irma and Maria, but she continues to express a hope that the parties will be able to reach an agreement on a plan of adjustment between all or substantially all of the parties, uh, including with respect to the ongoing Commonwealth COFINA dispute. Uh, the mediation team does not make the dates of the mediation publicly available or, or the status of the mediation, but at the April hearing on the summary judgment motions in connection with the Commonwealth COFINA dispute, Judge Hauser announced that there would be a meeting with the mediation parties following the hearing. No details regarding the subject of the meeting or what went on at the meeting have been made publicly available. So given all of what's playing out in the court and at the mediation and at the government level, there is still a lot of turmoil that's going on on the island itself as a result of Hurricanes Maria and Hurricane Irma. 
Judge Swain has also repeatedly emphasized that the Puerto Rican crisis is not just about debt, but is about the island and its inhabitants. Many of the island's inhabitants still have no power, and there has been a very large amount of controversy about the government's plans and abilities to restore living conditions to Puerto Ricans. Yeah, that's right. And um, as of April 4th, over uh, 95% of PREPA's substations actually have been energized, and the current estimate of uh, distribution customers who've been returned to energy is nearly 96%, according to that weekly report I mentioned that PREPA puts out. Uh, also, according to the report, about 86% of the linkages between substation communication units and the central uh, customer billing system have been restored. And this has been steadily improving over time. And PREPA said that this had caused the instrumentality significant bottlenecks in collecting receipts immediately after the storms. And while definitely a lot of customers have returned to at least having access to energy, the energy grid is still a long ways away from where it needs to be. As of April 4th, only 71% of the structures and components have been repaired, and 78% of transmission lines have been repaired. The energy grid as a whole is still pretty out of date relative to industry standards. Uh, due to continued underinvestment and inconsistent management. Uh, according to the declaration that was submitted in connection with PREPA's Title III filing, the median PREPA plant age is 44 years, compared with an industry average of 18 years. And PREPA also faces forced outages at a rate more than 50% higher than U.S. historical averages. And all of this is compounded by the fact that PREPA operates on an island sitting in the middle of the Caribbean that is prone to adverse weather conditions. For example, just this past Thursday, a fallen tree knocked out power for some 900,000 people across the island, which is almost 30% of the population just because of one single tree. And so the energy infrastructure is definitely something that will need to be fixed for the island to attract future investment and uh, for it to eventually return to economic growth. And that makes total sense, especially when we consider the uh, the out-migration that we discussed earlier and the projected cash flow numbers. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye on that for sure. Uh, Patrick and Yash, thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you for that update. There are certainly a huge amount of moving pieces here, and many of them have wide-ranging potential impacts uh, that affect the more than 3 million inhabitants of Puerto Rico, as well as the distressed debt market as a whole. I know you two and our dedicated coverage team in Puerto Rico, that's Kevin Mead and John Marino, will continue to watch this situation closely. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today, and tune in next time. And that's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Nick Lichtenberg. And I'm Karen Lund. And this has been The Week in Reorg. <laughs>